My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. So <clears throat> this is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and both Merrick and I are terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of the growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling the gaps of each department like Lou. I'm also autistic. So this is our 23rd episode of the podcast. Even you can have a strong relationship. A special guest, Jen Smith, mental health contractor and facilitator, and Ron Sanderson, one of our advisory board members. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. Here are some news and updates about the foundation. Okay, the first one, as usual, tune into our last episode, episode 22, where we talked to Dr. Kim Riviccio, our mental health counselor, along with myself making a special interview as board chair. In that episode, she speaks about mental health topics, the importance of therapy, and how both individuals with autism and their parents work into all of this. For my interview, I talk about my experiences as a person with autism and how my journey of empowerment has allowed me to become board chair and the importance of my role as one. Make sure to listen to the whole program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. We have been so happy to have had such a successful first session of winter spring programs. Session two will begin in the spring with our much loved programs like music therapy, tennis, and dance. Please be sure to speak to our new rec coordinator, Greg Connors, for more details. We still have volunteer positions for individuals for spring, our second session of programs. On our website, you will find all available positions and a way to apply to any of these. Positions include golf, yoga, tennis, and dance. Make sure to contact me for more details. Last update is uh, February is the month of Valentine's Day. And because of that, I thought that it would be good to illustrate that romantic relationships are great. But even if you don't have a romantic relationship, you can still celebrate Valentine's Day. It's about our connections with others. And so on to our interviews. Okay, everyone. So uh, today we have a very special guest and um, he's a member of our, uh, of our advisory board and his name is Ron Sanderson. Uh, Ron Sanderson works full-time in the medical field and is a professor of theology at Destiny School of Ministry. Besides being an advisory board member, of our uh, Els for Autism Foundation. He is also one of the art of autism. He has a Master of Divinity from Earl Roberts University and is the author of A Parent's Guide to Autism, Practical Advice, Biblical Wisdom, published 
by Charisma House and Views from the Spectrum. He has memorized over 15,000 scriptures, including 22 complete books of the New Testament. Sanderson speaks at over 70 events a year, including 20 plus education conferences. Ron and his wife, Kristen, reside in Rochester Hills, Michigan with daughter, Michaela. His website is uh, www.spectruminclusion.com. And Spectrum Inclusion is all one word. And you can contact him at Sandison, S-A-N-D-I-S-O-N, 456 at hotmail.com. So uh, welcome to the show, Ron. And it's very, very great to be having you on as one of our guests for the program. Thank you. Well, so thanks much. so much for having you on the program. I'm honored to be on your program today. All right, so um, a person who will start the questioning is my co-host, uh, Dr. Nate Shinnok. So Nate, do you wanna get the ball rolling? Yeah, let's do it. First of all, again, just a warm welcome to Ron. Today, we're, we're so excited to have you on for this interview. Um, I was hoping to start off, could you please tell our listeners about the work being done by Spectrum Inclusion, which of course is an organization that you founded to help young adults with autism and employment opportunities. So currently in the United States, only 3% of people are, with autism are gainfully employed and about 70 to 80% are unemployed and 20% are employed but not gainfully employed. So my goal at Spectrum Inclusion was to help young adults have the resources and skills to be able to be gainfully employed. So one of the main things I do is I speak around the country on autism and employment, also autism and mental health, because if your health isn't right, you're not going to be able to gainfully employed because you're going to miss too many days with mental health issues. So I like to teach seminars on mental health and also on autism employment. And I speak at about 70 events a year currently. And then I'm just finishing up my fourth book, Autism Growth and Transitioning to Adulthood, which um, has a whole chapter on employment, a whole chapter on navigating the interview process, and a whole process or a whole chapter on mental health. And these are gonna be great resources. I make made my fourth book so it will be able to be used by small groups of, with young adults with autism and they can learn those skills. It has fun activities in those chapters or reflection questions. So my main goal with um, Spectrum Inclusion is empower young adults with autism for employment and ultimately more independence. And that's the goal of Spectrum Inclusion. Yeah, that's an amazing mission, I have to say. So uh, on the topic of, of the you know, 70 events or so that you speak at during the course of the year, um, you know, and as an individual that delivers these excellent speeches, could you provide our listeners um, with some helpful public speaking tips that you've come across? Um, and this could be for individuals with autism or anyone that has some anxiety about public speaking? So I actually, on May 12th, I just set up an appointment to speak to Disability Network 
in Flint, Michigan, and the location I'm going to be presenting it is a very location where President Clinton signed in 1994 the Michigan or the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I told the lady she wants me to teach the young adults how to public speak. I use a three part for public speaking. Number one, hook. You got to hook the person in. And like a reel, you got to bring them in. So I have hook in my message. That's within one minute, I have to draw the person's attention to be able to listen to my message. Otherwise, they're going to be lost. And the hook I call the look. It's making a person want to look at what this message is about. Number two, I have book or content. You can be a great speaker and have no content and people come away and say that was a great message. But if it doesn't um, give them new information, they can apply their life and that they can live, that message is useless. And then the final one is took. What can you apply to your life from my message? So again, my messages always have a hook. I have some bait on there to draw the person in, to draw their attention. Number two, book. I have content. And number three, took. People are going to be able to apply my message to your life. So I try to keep my message simple, but at the same time, profound. Some of the most profound, life-changing messages we have here are the most simple. And my message, I'm a, I use a lot of PowerPoints so people can see and um, understand those messages. And I put them in simple steps and I break things down into diagrams and stuff that people can easily apply their lives. I have three traditionally published books so far and hopefully in the next week or so, I'll have another book signed for a contract. Yeah, thank you. That's some great advice and yeah, definitely important to establish some connection and rapport with the, the people in the audience. And uh, I like some of the fishing analogies also. I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. I always joke we got a lake behind the um, hospital I work in. I tell people that there's carp as big as a school bus. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, so my last question is, you know, I was wondering, based on some of the interviews I've seen you do and materials that I've seen you come out with, um, you know, it looks like your, your faith and your study of religion is uh, a big part of your, your life. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and also how it's helped you to overcome some of the obstacles that you faced. Yeah, so one, I always tell people the two most important things in your life is number one, faith. You need faith in God faith that the world's going to be a better place and that motivates you to work. And number two is connections, being able to connect with people. And my faith really blossomed my junior year of high school. I was on the wrong path. I was smoking weed every day, drinking every weekend, um, hanging around with people I shouldn't be hanging around with. My dad always had a saying, you can't hang around with junkyard dogs and expect to wake up the next day without having fleas. I had all kinds of fleas all over me. As I was hanging around with people who were only bringing me down, I was depressed, using substance to um, feel better about myself. In my junior year of high school, a girl invited me back to church and said, Pastor Greg has some great messages of faith, and we really miss seeing you at youth group. So I went to youth group on a Wednesday night and rededicated my life to Christ. I 
gave up drinking, I gave up smoking, I gave up swearing, and I grew close to God during this time. And during that first year, my junior year, I memorized over 2,000 Bible verses in one year, including 1 John and James, the book of James and many other Bible verses, the whole Sermon on the Mount. And um, God, as I committed my life to him, blessed my life. Psalms 84, 11 through 12 says, The Lord God is son's shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor, and no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, bless the man who trusts in you. As I trusted in God, I gave God not only my life, but my track season. I said, God, bless my track season. And my junior year, we made it to the state finals, and my relay team finished 12th in the state of Michigan. And on the way back from the state finals, Nate Clay, who'd um, end up running under a four-minute mile and win the Big Ten for the University of Minnesota, said next year we'll be the fastest relay team in Michigan, one of the fastest in the United States, but we won't have Ron on our relay team because he'll be past the age limit. And right then God spoke to my heart and said, I'll provide a way for you to run on the track team. And I said, I'm going to run on the track team next year. And the coach looked at me and laughed and he said, in the last 20 years, no one has been able to compete in a high school athletic event in Michigan past the age limit. My mom called the Michigan High School Athletic Association. And they said, we don't care if your son has a disability and autism, we're not going to let him compete. Things looked hopeless. The season was coming. My mom called every lawyer in Michigan and they said it'd be over $40,000 for Americans with Disabilities case against the MHSAA. We didn't lose hope. My dad said, all you can do now is put it in God's hands. Psalms 25.3, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. He said, God won't put you to shame. He'll answer your prayer according to his glory and goodness. But you got to trust God. So a few more weeks went by. The season's about to begin. And I come home from a five-mile run, and I get the Detroit Free Press. And there on the front page of Detroit Free Press was a young man named Craig Stanley. He was born May 1975, same year, same month as me. He was a track and cross-country runner, just as I was, and he had a learning disability, and the MHSA told his family they wouldn't let him compete. His learning disability wasn't autism. So my parents called his parents. We got together and prayed. He was a strong Christian, what was the most important thing that we had in common. And I told him, I said, me and you are going to run on the track team, and God's going to provide a way. He's already showed me. I don't know how it's going to happen. So my mom said, let's have the Detroit Free Press do a second article saying now there's two young men in the state of Michigan whose civil rights are being violated. And that Wednesday, um, or the Wednesday of the, after we met, it was published in the Detroit Free Press that there were two young men with learning disabilities. That Sunday, I was getting water baptized to show my commitment to following Christ. And when I came out of the water, the minister said to me, he goes, I normally don't give someone a word from God during baptism, but I saw something when you came out of that water, and I know it was God. He said, I saw Joel 2.25, I repay the years that the locusts have eaten. Great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, great swarm I sent among you. He said, there was something in your life, maybe a disability or something else that ate away from your life, and God's going to give you a message, and he's going to repay those years, and you're going to have a message that you're going to bring across the world of God's love and acceptance um, for those who place their faith in Christ. And then when I got home from getting water baptized, this was pre-cell phone days, 
the um the answering machine was blinking red. And when I went up and pressed the button, it began this way. Hi, my name's Rick Landel. I'm a young lawyer. I just graduated with my PhD. I want to take your case pro bono. All I need is your signature. And what was interesting is that the time on the answering machine was the exact time that I was water baptized, 9 a.m. He took our case. I won the or we won the case, Craig Stanley and I. I got to compete. We finished um, second in the state of Michigan for the 3200 relay for time. And I got full ride for track and cross country to Michigan Christian College, which is now Rochester University, and went to college. The story doesn't end there. Here's where it gets interesting is when I wrote my first book, Parents Guide Autism, Practical Advice, Biblical Wisdom, I interviewed 40 of the top experts in the world who work in the autism field and 40 of the most unique, amazing people on the autism spectrum. And I interviewed a man named Gary Marison. He's the reason we have ABA therapy today. He had two sons who were on the spectrum. The insurance company said they wouldn't pay for their ABA therapy. He was a lawyer and he said, if you won't pay for their therapy, you're going to pay for everyone's therapy. So he took the insurance company all the way to Supreme Court. He won many, many um, groundbreaking um, insurance claims for ABA and made it a household name. That's why we know what ABA therapy is today because of Gary Marison. And when I interviewed him, he said, I'm going to tell you, Ron, the inner ending of your book because I knew you way back four years ago before you even knew you'd know me. And here's how it goes. There's a man named Anthony Stargo. He was a place kicker in high school football. And um, he loved football. He was on the autism spectrum. And um, after his senior year in New Jersey, you get an extra year of football if you're on this, or you get an extra year of um, school if you're on the spectrum. And the New Jersey High School Athletic Association told Anthony's parents, Ray and Ray Ann, that they wouldn't let him compete. And he went to Gary Marison. Gary Marison said, let me see if there's anything on the law books that can help me defend your being able to compete in high school sports with having autism. He went and found Sanderson versus the MHSA. He used my case, and then ES, he ended up winning. He ended up winning a state finals. And then ESPN did a piece on him, a documentary film called Kick of Hope. And that's really what faith does and trust in God, it gives us hope. And without hope, we can't survive. Well, thank you, Ron, for that's an amazing story and testimony. I just wanna make one quick comment. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. You said, you know, it was around your, your senior year or towards the end of your high school uh, career that, that you found God and um, you just felt, uh, <laughs> kind of a burst burst of power in your personal life and your athletic abilities. And um, I also found God, I would say my senior year of high school. And it was the year that we won the state tennis championship in Florida. So um, I can definitely relate to that story and, and just thank you again for it. Do you know um, Brittany Tagliari, the tennis player in Florida? who's on the spectrum, a professional tennis player. She's met all the um, well-known tennis players. She's won something like 
20 um, Special Olympics gold medals and um, competed even against many um, well-known tennis players. I've heard of her. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, she had her stories in my um, new book, Views from the Spectra. I interviewed her and her mom. Awesome. I can't wait to check it out. All right. Well, I'm going to hand it over to the lead host, Merrick, here. Well, I must say, um, absolutely wonderful answers and uh, definitely a wonderful story of sorts. Um, you know, you just uh, don't always uh, know, you know, how things will turn out, but you if you have faith, if you always have some form of faith, you know, that that will end up turning out to be something that can probably be beneficial. Um, so my questions are a little bit different from Nate's, but I think that they would also be, uh, you know, very advantageous to our listening audience. Um, the first question, that I would like to ask is what are the pros and cons about being married with a kid and having autism? All right. So the pro is um, you have a loving um, spouse who's able to help you in your areas of weakness, who's able to encourage you. A lot of times when you have the autism, it's not just autism you have, you have depression, you have anxiety. And my wife, I can honestly say this whenever I'm thinking about something too deeply or she'll say you have that look and she can, she just can tell um, when my sensory issues are acting up or when I'm getting angry or when I'm um, getting near where I could have a meltdown. She's able to um, have that motherly connection with me and be able to help me calm down and help me to evaluate what I'm going through and even when I'm depressed or other things, companionship's a good one. Um, having a child, um, you it gets rid of a lot of the autism quirks that you have because now you're forced to be the adult and you can't always be the child. And a child just gets its needs met and doesn't give out as much as an adult. So you learn to have to to um, be a giver and to serve and to, to do all these good things that make you an adult. Um, some of the setbacks is um, when you're married, you can't always follow your own routines. Um, you're gonna have a lot of more um, times when you gotta transition or, or um, do different things and, and it can be hard at times. It's um, a lot of stress because now you're not only having to take care of yourself and um, you're not being taken care of, but now you gotta take care of a wife and a family and you have a lot more responsibilities and a lot of times people with autism have enough stress and anxiety and then with those added um, responsibilities comes added anxiety well thank you so much for your answers um very insightful um my second question is, what do you hope your kid grows up to know and learn about people with neurological differences? I hope she learns to see the beauty in neurodiversity. I have many unique gifts. I can write books. I do public speaking. But at the same time, I have my kryptonites, those areas that 
our struggles that cause meltdowns. And um, she'll be able to love me for the gifts I have, but also for who I am, not just for what, what I do. So I hope she can appreciate those differences in people with disabilities. A lot of times a sibling of someone who's disabled has more compassion for people who are disabled. And I hope she has that same compassion that if a kid in her kindergarten class is making fun of someone with a speech impediment, that she'll stand up for that kid who has a speech impediment. That if there's a kid with autism stemming and someone saying a derogatory comment, then my daughter will be able to stand up for that person. So I hope she's able to see the beauty in neurodiversity. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure with a father like you, she will definitely do all those things. I oh, have thanks. a lot of faith in that. And uh, lastly, um, the third question I have is, what are some tips individuals with autism should consider in order to have a healthy relationship? So I think the first thing you got to realize with autism in a healthy relationship is it's a give and take relationship. You can't just take, but you got to give. Second one is that you can't become dependent on that person to feel good about yourself, to always want to be with you. You got to give them a little space. You got to be interested, but not hovering. And a lot of times people with autism, they'll suck someone in and then um, they'll drain them of all their energy. And then the person will feel like they're trapped. I remember one person was in a relationship and the girl said to him, I feel like a butterfly that's in a jar. I don't feel like I have freedom because you always have to be with you. I want someone who wants to be with me, but doesn't have to be with me. And I think that's key is not to drain the person you're with. So love and respect, giving people proper boundaries. And then third, to um, do special things for that person, make them feel like the most important person in the room when they walk in their room. And that means that when it's your, spouse's birthday you get them a, a gift and um you remember the holidays like valentine's days and christmas and that you're able to um show them that love they deserve i heard one comedian say it best he says there's one way you'll never forget your spouse's birthday he said do it once and you'll never forget so i think that relationships are give and takes they're about having proper boundaries and they're about also meeting the needs of the other person because if you meet their needs, they're gonna meet your needs. And if you feel like you're in a relationship and you feel like you're always walking on glass, you feel unsure in it, then you're probably not in the right relationship. Well, <clears throat> so those are all my questions and I think that everyone in the listening audience is going to admire the wisdom of your answers. So um, I really, really want to thank you for taking the time to be a part of this episode. It's very special episode. And I uh, really uh, cannot wait to see what you do next. Um, Nate, do you have anything that you would like to add or say? Yeah, just 
want to say thanks again. That's very insightful and also uh, stimulating answers. Probably definitely one of the best interviews we've done. And uh, is, is there anything else you'd like to say, Ron, while you're here? Yeah, I'd like to end with one of my favorite quotes all time. And it's Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher. He said this, he said, by perseverance, the snail made it on the ark. What I like to share is no matter how slow you are, even if you're sluggish like a snail, if you're heading in the right direction, you're doing what God's called you to do, you're doing the right things, good things are going to come your way. Okay, everyone. So we have another special guest for everyone to uh, know more about to to know about and i think that she is a very very special individual um not not just in the not just as part of the foundation but overall in general and her uh name is jen smith so i will introduce her to you all with with uh this um when I was much younger, one of my greatest connections was to my high school psychologist, Dr. Raff. Whenever I felt confused, depressed, even in the best of times, I would visit her as my primary form of mental care in the last years of my time at Savona Park High School. While she may not have known that I have Asperger's syndrome, she still was very helpful. The high school on our campus grounds, the Learning Academy, has its own licensed mental health counselor, Jen Smith, which reminds me of my high school psychologist, and I could hardly think of a better match for the students than her. She has also emerged as an important figure in the foundation's movement towards a greater mental health curriculum as a contracted mental health professional who sees clients one-on-one -on -one and also facilitates our support groups. She has had plenty of experience talking to a wide variety of clients on a wide variety of issues. Because of this, we have chosen her to be our staff guest on this episode of our podcast, answering the tough questions on mental health and social relationships, as it all comes down to individuals with autism. It's unfortunate that you won't be able to see her during this broadcast, because she also will remind you of Jennifer Aniston from Friends. So how much of that was accurate, uh, Ms. Smith? <laughs> Thank you, Merrick. That was great. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. Those were very kind words. I do um, uh, see individuals and families and run groups uh, for the foundation. And I've been uh, the on-staff mental health counselor at the Learning Academy for many years now. Um, probably the, the best job I've ever had. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And it's also been very, very nice uh, getting involved in all the different ways that my uh, duties and roles at the foundation has helped me provide um, greater knowledge and information about everyone who's a part of the, um, I wouldn't say a cog, but a part of the whole structure that operates um, with, with grace and dignity and speed and passion. So that's, that's uh, fantastic. Yes, everybody um, that we work with um, at the high school um, and at the foundation, uh, just wonderful people um, 
that all come together for a common mission. Um, and we are all very passionate about what we do, uh, making it just a great place to be. Okay, so um, I would like to give the baton over to my co-host, Nate, for the first three questions that we will uh, try to, uh, I guess, get some uh, very, very interesting answers on. Well, thank you, Merrick. That's very generous of you. And first of all, I'd like to give a warm welcome to, to Jen. Uh, I'm a big fan, uh, especially since I got to sit in on one of the groups a couple years ago while I was still in graduate school. <laughs> and I was very impressed um, by how you facilitated the group. And uh, Merrick, you weren't so bad yourself. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for that. <laughs> I, I appreciate uh, that kind of thing. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that compliment. Hey, it's well well deserved. So, Jen, first yes. of all, could you speak a little more about why you were motivated to provide mental health services to individuals on the spectrum, specifically? Well, it was um, interesting. My uh, graduate degree is actually in marriage and family therapy. And um, I, I, I kind of fell into this by accident, uh, probably about 12 years ago now. Um, I was going through a life change and uh, got asked to pick up um, some behavior analysis cases. Uh, back in the day um, with a, uh, an LMHC, which is my degree, <clears throat> you could uh, work as a behavior analyst, you did not necessarily need your BCBA. And there was a case um, that someone else had that they described as more mental healthy. <laughs> so they, they wanted me to take the case. And this student uh, went to the Learning Academy. Um, unfortunately, mom and I could not get our schedules together to save our lives. We both had just crazy schedules. And so uh, mom asked Toby, our principal, if we could work out a way for me to see her on campus. And he, he said I could, which was wonderful. And um, I just, through working with the different teachers there and watching what they do, um, I just really developed an interest in how all of this works and um, how impactful and important mental health counseling is uh, for this population. And um, Dr. Uh, Toby um, asked me to come on as a contractor initially, and now I'm full-time, and I just started seeing more and more clients. Um, I, I was first introduced to the concept of black and white thinking very early on in my time at the Learning Academy. Um, there was a young man that was a high school student there and my perception of him was just that he was kind of rude and awful and um, because he had made another student that I, I knew cry and had made her very upset and I had been under the impression that they were they were friends. And I was given the opportunity to talk to this young man and kind of dig a little bit more into the situation. And what had happened was his friend um, came to school with a new pair of shoes and he told her those shoes are hideous. Do not ever wear them again. And this very much upset the young lady and she went home crying. And of course, her mother was upset and it started a big thing. And so when I had the opportunity to work with this young man and really dig into what he meant when he said that, it just a light bulb went off for me. 
And basically what it was, was he told me, he said, Miss Jen, she's my friend. And those shoes are hideous. And I don't want her to wear them out because I don't want other people to say bad things to her. And that just made so much sense to me because he was being perceived as somebody that was being nasty. And, and in reality, what he was doing uh, was actually very caring. So I thought about how he didn't necessarily have, he wasn't picking up on social cues to understand that his words were harsh and how they were being perceived by others. And so that kind of created a trickle down effect of how other people were perceiving him. So by me working with him and kind of getting him to understand how we could get that same message across with different verbiage, it, there was a change. There was a change in him. There was a change in other people around him and people that he interacted with. So anyway, um, that was just kind of a light bulb moment for me. And, um, you know, here I am 12 years later. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an amazing story. And I think it's safe to say that the, the learning Academy and, and all the students there that you've worked with, they've been the beneficiaries of that light bulb. Um, <laughs> that, that's such an interesting anecdote because, you know, you can think about, it's so difficult for us to, I guess, to say difficult things to the people we love sometimes, um, mm -hmm. even if they are truthful. So it just shows that unique way of, of seeing the world. And yeah, really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think we often take for granted um, nonverbal communication and uh, social cues. Um, I've got another little anecdote, if you have a second. Um, We've got a minute. Yeah, okay. Um, there at, at, our, at our old building, before we got to this fantastic building, there was a hallway. So you would have to go out of one door and into another. And I noticed that students would kind of allow the door to slam in the face of the person behind them. And again, outside of our little TLA bubble, that would be perceived as rude. And when you're perceived as rude, people interact with you as such. But ultimately what that is, I sat back and I thought about it. And I said, you know, when I was growing up, I don't think my mother or father ever stopped and taught me, this is how you walk through a door. It is something that I picked up through nonverbal communication, through modeling from my parents or whomever I was with, and I just learned to do it. So when you have deficits in um, understanding nonverbal communication, some of those things are lost. So sometimes we just have to take a step back and say, hey, you know, let's just look at this for a second. When you're walking through the door, extend your arm behind you so that the person behind you has a chance to catch the door before it slams in their face. Hmm. So, you know, just, you know, things like that. It's just, you know, it's an alternate way of looking at things um, that that's been, you know, helpful for me. Yeah, those are excellent examples. Um, so in terms of therapeutic options for this population, what have you seen to be particularly effective and it could be within the individual or group setting? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, it, it definitely varies person by person, but if I were to sum it up, I would say cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, my go-to. And essentially why that is, is, you know, we have emotions that uh, give way to thoughts and thoughts that give way to behavior. 
um, I'm sorry, we have thoughts that give way to emotion, which give away to behavior. So if the thoughts are faulty or based on what we call cognitive distortions, then that you know ultimately impacts our behavior and our emotions. Um, some examples of those, uh, you know, catastrophizing. It's a really good I, example. I hate to butt in, but uh-huh. I think you can list every single example as having something to do with something that I've said in the past that you've heard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you can basically have me up there as a role model for what <laughs> cognitive distortions are. <laughs> oh, Eric, we all have them. We all have them. Um, but catastrophizing, making um, the worst assumption out of something. Um, oh my gosh, I'm totally going to fail this test. And that's your thought process. I am going to fail this test. So then the emotion associated with that may be anxiety. And then the behavior is that it's going to impact your performance because you're very anxious. So if we change that thought to, you know what, I've studied as hard as I can, and I'm going to do my best on this test, that's going to hopefully um, decrease the anxiety we have about the test, which will impact your behavior and the outcome, which is you performing better on the test. But there's several cognitive distortions, but that's one um, that's kind of my go-to at work. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Yeah. And uh, definitely easy for for many of us to draw some parallels um, with those distortions and CBT. It's it's useful for everyone, really, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Also, uh, try to use on in some situations, a more solution focused question. I think oftentimes we lose sight of what our goal is um, in life, whether that be to be successful and be in a relationship or uh, finish college and and get a job. And we, we get so jumbled with all of these things that we perceive to be in our way that we lose sight of what the end goal is too. So sometimes to help clients regain the focus on what the long-term goal is, Um, I'll use some form of what we call a miracle question, which is a solution focused technique. And something like that would be um, if, you know, if I had a magic wand and we waved it and your life was perfect, what would be different than it is right now? And that a lot of times opens up um, different conversations to get the person back to focus on what the long-term goal is instead of being so muddled and bogged down by, um, all the things that they're feeling that they can't do in the in this present moment. Yeah, I really like that exercise, and I imagine it's helpful for training executive functioning. Yes, skills too. Just a little more planning for the future and uh, making the most of the day by day situation. Right. Absolutely. It can also be helpful with emotional regulation too. Yeah. Um, so you know, looking at the long term goal. Um, uh, you know, and helping you decide, is this a big problem or a little problem? And, you know, just trying to get your emotional regulation on track when we're dysregulated, um, it's very difficult to see clearly and and make any sound decisions or, you know, take any sound, you know, good actions towards your goal. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So my last question with, uh, with most mental health conditions, you know, rising in prevalence, just from a statistics standpoint, 
what are some strategies from a societal and, you know, a more individualistic perspective that we uh, could use to help counter this trend? Well, I, I think that the rise, you know, we have in the mental health field, my goodness, you know, Merrick can attest to that from his work. Uh, well, he wears many hats at the foundation, but we, we have this wait list, um, you know, that seems to be like a mile long. And I know amongst a lot of professionals in my field, there's a lot of people um, that um, have wait lists. And what I think has happened when you look at COVID, and I know that I, I feel like I talk about this so much, but I think that it's been so impactful in so many ways. You know, it all started two years ago and our worlds came to a screeching halt, um, especially in the beginning. You know, things are shut down, everybody's inside, and it kind of forced us to not ignore what's going on. I think when we get to, you know, our, our normal busy lives going here to here to there, you know, juggling, you know, maybe school and work or a family and work or whatever it is, we repress and stuff down so much of the things that, that are already going on inside of us. And when COVID hit and everything had to stop, we couldn't hide from it anymore. And so a lot of things surfaced. That's what I really, you know, what I really think is behind it. I think those, those things were there already, but they were just like, all right, well, now we got to deal with them. Um, and so I think that the lesson that I personally have taken from this whole thing, and I see it professionally and personally, is to take note of yourself on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that be at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, just take a moment to breathe and absorb the day. Um, focus on the things that went really well. Think about the things that are growing edges, um, things that maybe we want to improve on, but not necessarily look at them in a negative way of, oh, this day was awful. Oh, I did this wrong. I did that wrong. But think of it more in, an, in a constructive way of, you know what, maybe tomorrow I'm going to try this a little different. But anyway, taking stock on a day-by-day -day basis so that we're not just repressing and stuffing everything. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, guys, I, I hear it all the time and we don't have time um, for our own mental health. And when you take a step back and think about that, and you know, that's, I'm talking to myself here too, because, you know, I, I run a million miles a, a minute sometimes, and we need to take stock of our, of our own mental health. We need to be proactive. We need to notice what's going on with us and um, what is motivating us and how many times take stock. How many times are you laughing a day? Um, you know, we're all supposed to belly laugh five day, five times a day in order for optimum mental health. I don't know if anybody knows that or not, but I, I oh. you know, <laughs> think about that. How many times do you actually belly laugh a day? Um, you know, so just an awareness and stopping and, um, taking care of ourselves and noticing. And when we, we need help, reach out for help, whether that be through a mental health professional or your best friend, or you know what, I just need to slow down and do nothing today and everything else can wait and that's okay. Yeah, those are some great strategies. And uh, to add one point, I, I like what you said about, you know, with the, the pandemic coming on and people just, you know, kind of, maybe being alone in a room with their thoughts for the first time in a, a considerable, you know, amount of time, uh, there was maybe a consequence of that was, uh, 
people struggling with their mental health potentially. But um, I also think that the rise in, in reported mental health issues and then the amount of people seeking treatment. I know, you know, at the foundation, there's, there's a wait list and it, you know, the practice I'm working at, there's a, there's a long wait list. I think if, if I was to take a positive away, it would just be that these issues are being talked about a lot more and um, people are now more willing to actually report that they're struggling with mental health issues. I, I think that could be, my hope is that that's at least part of the, the increase in prevalence we're seeing. Yes, I, I hope so too. Um, you know, normalizing um, needing mental health and it shouldn't be something that's shameful. It's something like, you know, a tune-up for your car or, yeah. you know, plugging in your phone battery at the end of the night and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so trying to take, I, I, I'm hoping that there's a taking away of the taboo behind getting mental health, mental health services or just needing help in general. Definitely. Well, thank you, Jen. I'm going to hand it over to the lead host here, Merrick. (laughs) Um, I don't know. You did a very, very good job leading in these questions. Um, You know, next time you, you get to, you get to lead, I guess. (laughs) Hey, I I guess, you know, it takes two to tango. It takes one to lead. Um, that's that's uh okay so uh aside from that uh joke that i told um i will go into my questions i really did uh i i really really like the answers you gave jen um as um i've uh said before to uh ron in the previous interview i had with him my questions are going to be a little bit different but they're also going to be very interesting in a similar way that Nate's questions are. So the first one is a little bit of a mouthful. Um, One of the most Googled questions neurotypicals ask about dating on the autism spectrum is, can autistic people fall in love? Is a quote referenced constantly from Dr. Tara Oswald from Dating on the Autism Spectrum. What are some myths and misconceptions of individuals with autism and romantic relationships? You're asking me this, Merrick, correct? Yep. Okay. Um, I hope know, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've heard a lot. Um, I've heard a lot of those, but I think if I were to sum it up, the most common um, people with ASD don't feel love or they're unwilling to form social relationships. I think those are, are some of the, the biggest, those are the two biggest misconceptions, I believe. Yeah. And uh, so are, are what are uh, myths and misconceptions uh, related to those kinds of uh, questions that people may have? Well, I mean, I think that people with ASD are still people. And people absolutely feel love. Um, we're social creatures. Um, and you know, the, it may look like an unwillingness uh, to someone who doesn't understand autism, but that's, that's appearance. That's not actually what it is. 
Um, it may be um, a lack of confidence. I see that a lot, not understanding how um, to connect with other human beings. Um, so, you know, maybe we've had some failed attempts and so our confidence decreases every time that happens. And, um, you know, I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen people all but give up um, with social connections and, and then they, they kind of adopt the attitude of, I don't want to have relationships. Um, I don't believe, and in my work anyway, when you dig a little bit, um, that's not really the case. It's not an, I don't want, it's a, I'm struggling to know how to do it effectively. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, I will have to throw a little bit of my Tinder into the fire. Uh -huh. And I, I do believe, you know, that while it's not always said, I do believe that there are plenty and plenty of people who uh, really want to be involved in a relationship who happen to be on the spectrum. And uh, I could even take apart my own example of myself because, you know, I, I don't talk about it too much with others, but, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not like there isn't a sense of feeling a, a sense of loneliness that, you know, it's, it's a part of the whole like human condition. It's, it's like the, the idea that people with autism do not want to socialize mm -hmm. or do not want to engage in social environments or do not want to engage uh, you know, in, in any kind of social situation. And that kind of thing is really, you know, it's, it's not true. And I've seen some great social relationships and dynamics play over what I've observed and analyzed in some of the programs we have on campus. So it, yeah, I, I, I really will say that there are definitely, um, some, uh, myths and misconceptions that uh, that people may need to know a little bit more. You know, Merrick, if I were to use you as an example, <clears throat> I think about our spoken wheel group that uh, is your baby. And I think about, you know, I, I know a lot of the participants in that group and you, the, the environment that has been created has made people feel safe. And as a result of that, <clears throat> you have friendships that carry on outside the group, which correct me if I'm wrong, that was kind of the, the purpose of the group was to establish friendships. Um, so they're friends within the group and everybody looks forward to that group. Um, but there's also social relationships happening outside of the group, people traveling together, people on the phone together, people's families getting together, things of that nature. So, you know, I think that that's a really good example of um, people being put in a situation where they feel comfortable and accepted and safe and friendships happen and social connections happen. Well, I appreciate your uh, compliments on the social group that uh, we have. Um, on the blog article I wrote, I went over that one, but, you know, any ability for two people to get connected in any which way doesn't matter their level of ability it doesn't matter you know what type of person they are 
what what matters is that you know they they see another person or they interact with another person and that can go from you know a stranger on the street to a friend you constantly go out to lunch with or hang out with and i i think that that's that's that can be when it happens and the magic is there it can be very very you know great to know so um, second question, some semi-related to the first, um, as a mental health professional, statistics of people with autism being in romantic relationships or getting married are very low. Mm-hmm. How much of an impact does being in a, in a relationship have on people with ASD? Well, I think that, again, I, I think it has, it can have a very positive impact um, to be in a relationship. You know, I think that being in a stable, loving, reciprocal relationship is, is definitely going to increase quality of life. Um, you know, again, I, I think that those, those numbers are low um, because of maybe a, a lack of understanding. Um, I found, you know, at the, at the high school, um, I have a couple of classes and once a week we kind of talk about relationships and I define different relationships and, you know, what's a, a appropriate greetings and physical contact within professional relationships versus friendships versus romantic relationships, etc. And what I have found and, uh, you know, these, these are high school students, um, late teenagers going into early adulthood and because maybe they've had limited Um, social interaction um, compared maybe to teenagers without ASD. They rely on things that they see um, as defining what a relationship should be like. Um, It's interesting to me when I talk to them about romantic relationships, because boy, is there an interest. They want to talk about, always want to talk about romantic relationships. And that's, you know, um, why that going back to that myth, about they don't feel love. That is just so not true because the desire for relationship is there every bit as much as it is um, in any high school setting. And what I'm hearing and seeing is that their impression of how to, and this is a, a quote that I just, you know, to directly quote a student, woo a lady, um, a lot of their perceptions are things that they're seeing on videos seeing in movies or on sitcoms versus real life experience and you know when we dramatize the things that we see real life isn't like the sitcoms that we watch on tv and you know that's their point of reference which i think throws people off and and puts them at a disadvantage um so i think talking about those things with um with our students and with our young men and women um you know at an early age is very important to get them to talk about reading nonverbal cues and understanding um, comments that are made and sarcasm and how to interpret if somebody's interested or not interested. And um, I remember one of the, the misconceptions that a couple of my uh, young men, young male students had was that if they are attracted to someone that makes them their girlfriend they did not you know that piece of no it has to be reciprocal they have to be willing to be your girlfriend um so things like that and it basically it comes down to communication and education and discussion yeah 
I, uh, I definitely uh, will have to say, you know, when I was a lot younger, I had, you know, delusions of what it was like to feel love versus being infatuated with someone. And I thought because it was such a powerful emotion that couldn't compare it to anything else I had felt. Mm -hmm. And because of this great feeling like, you know, here's this person and I feel such an overwhelming sense of interest and maybe even a euphoric reaction, knowing that this person is there, I thought that that was love. Right. Because, you know, when people talk about love, it's, you know, this intense, overwhelming feeling. And because I felt that whenever I would be interested in someone in such a profound way, when I was going to school, um, you know, I I confused the two. Um, (laughs) And it actually, it may have helped and it may have hurt because then there would be a development of this feeling of extreme shyness and anxiety when it came to even talking to the person. <laughs> yes. I actually would have, like, my friends would serve as messengers. I remember there was this farewell dance we had in middle school in the eighth grade, and I was very, very interested in this one girl. I wanted to dance with her during the farewell dance, I hardly ever spoke to her, but I was still very, very interested. So my best friend at the time, I had him go over and speak to her. And it was like giving messages to send to her. He would like talk to her about what I said. Then he would come back. He would say what she said and that kind of thing. And I think it happened a few different times. And eventually she just said she was not ready. Um, interestingly enough, I would sit at a cafeteria table later on in high school, and I learned that at that time, she was actually seeing someone at the same time that I thought that I would be able to dance with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, I just didn't really know what to do. It was like this person became such a mythic figure that to even be close to this person felt like, you know, being shattered in half or having this form of radiance that would just completely blind me to anything else. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just couldn't get it. Right. But, but it felt so magical and so surreal that even though I look at it now, like, yeah, I was pretty naive back then. And I was, you know, I, I, it limited me from actually uh, trying to cover more of what I could actually experience. Um, I still look back on those moments as, you know, there was something magical about it, even if it was completely naive mm-hmm. and not having a single understanding at all of what love really was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I was young, I was naive, I was impressionable, and I, see, I saw someone and, you know, it, it would just, it would just trigger a feeling in me that I just never knew. I don't know if I would say I never knew it existed, but it, 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 it went beyond 
you know, the typical feeling of, you know, a, a hormonal experience, it just, it felt almost spiritual. And it was a very, very powerful feeling. So. Right. Well, and I think that those feelings are very typical for anybody. Um, you know, when we get to that place of infatuation, or, you know, very big crushes in, in the high school age. Um, and, you know, one of the another one of the things that I, I noticed with my students is because of the some of the inexperience with noticing social cues of others or the awareness of social cues of others, the whole concept of, for example, playing it cool um, is sometimes missed. So we like somebody and we just shower them with constant attention because we think that's what we should be doing, but we're not picking up on the fact that maybe while sure that's nice and that's complimentary, it's overwhelming the other person. And if we're not aware of that, that other person kind of naturally pushes away from us and we miss opportunities that way. So that's kind of, you know, an example of what I mean with um, teaching awareness. Yeah, I think that another thing is to, you know, not have all your eggs in one basket. Right. You know, if that one person, because usually the people who I'd be attracted to already had boyfriends or, you know, someone else, and I should have diverted my attention away from that person and towards possible options, you know, someone who I could have, you know, a conversation with, who I could, you know, end up starting a relationship with. And, you know, eventually that would be the option or that would be, you know, one of a few options in case that one doesn't work out. Right. One of my problems was that I put too many eggs in one basket uh -huh. and my my whole mission was about this one person when I really should have been just more like, you know, if I'm interested in this one person, I'm interested, but if, you know, she's, she's with someone, you know, I can be interested in someone else and it shouldn't be this overwhelming feeling, but rather this feeling that, you know, is easier to share with others that, that it becomes less intense and it becomes more manageable. And that probably could have allowed me to have a healthy, successful relationship all the way back then. But I was just, I, I, I guess that it was, you know, heavy emotions and, you know, this kind of black or white attitude I had about certain things. You know, it's either this person or it's nobody or it's either that thing or it's nobody. And it was really self-destructive and very damaging for me. And, right. you know, if, if you're able to help people who, you know, would have been my peers back when to see, you know, the how, how to turn that into something productive and constructive for themselves, mm -hmm. then I say that you're doing a great job, you know, because you're, you're allowing, you're basically telling them you have to refocus. You have to do these things that will allow you to have a healthy, successful relationship that isn't about, you know, uh, worship or some kind of divinity for, for this, one person or, or these, you know, two or three or, or whatever it is. So well, it's, I, it's 
it's a lot about talking about reciprocity. Yep. You know, feeling, being able to receive that feeling as well as give that feeling. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's all very, very important for, for people to know and understand. I just, I guess what I really do wish is that I had someone like you when I was going to school who would have, uh, I maybe would have been way too stubborn to really answer on that advice, but that kind of advice, if I actually listened to it and I actually found a way to reprogram my mind and re-engineer myself in that direction, I, I, that would have really, really saved me a few heartbreaks here and there when I realized, you know, that this just wasn't going to work and this just wasn't going to happen. Right. So uh, sort of speaking a little bit about this, um, my last question is this. What are some tips you can give to like lonely single people with ASD who are looking to make connections with others? romantic or otherwise. Okay. Well, I think like I mentioned before, reciprocity, noticing reciprocity, understanding what that is in a relationship is very, very important. Um, I think a lot of times we get stuck on this whole, um, well, I think she's beautiful and I want to be her boyfriend. And so that's, that's it. We're not taking time to take a step back and think about well, why do I feel this way? Have I had real conversation with her? Do we have anything in common? <clears throat> or is it just that I think she's pretty? Does she feel the same way about me? Is she interested in me? Does she have a boyfriend already, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another thing, and you know, you mentioned, um, you know, this, this uh, infatuation situation that you had in high school. I see that a lot too. Um, I'm thinking of a young man, we just had this conversation a couple weeks ago where he had a, a girlfriend and the relationship ended and there's going back to kind of the CBT stuff. There's some catastrophizing in his thinking where it's, and it's very black and white. Well, that relationship ended. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And I mean, he's 19 years old, you know? And um, so avoiding that all or nothing thinking when it comes to relationships, um, you know, the whole point of dating, in my opinion, anyway, is to kind of figure out, what we like and what we don't for a long-term life partner. So, you know, most of the people you date, you're going to break up with because you, you know, hopefully you're only marrying one. So, um, you know, avoiding that all or nothing thinking, um, being aware and understanding reciprocity. And again, um, communication is, is key. Um, I remember um, a while back, I worked with a couple and um, the man had ASD and the woman did not. And it came out in session, there was a lot of anxiety and there had been some kind of meltdown type situations that um, the young woman was not understanding. And as it turned out, he had sensory issues with holding hands. And so he would kind of get upset when she wanted to hold hands and she did not have the information to understand why. And so she was kind of viewing it as a rejection and maybe he doesn't really like me when really it was a very simple explanation of, listen, holding hands makes me really uncomfortable. And once that information was out there, um, they were able to smooth that over. So communication just in, in relationships with anybody um, is really a, a big factor. That actually uh, makes a lot of sense because, you know, I think that disclosure is important. Um, 
I was talking to this one uh, woman. Um, I've been talking to her for a while now. And in one of our first phone conversations, uh, she thought that because I had like a flat monotonal kind of voice that I sounded disinterested, that I was disinterested in her. And I had to tell her that, you know, generally uh, with many, many individuals with Asperger's syndrome or some form of ASD, that, you know, the voice comes out sounding flat and monotonal and that kind of thing, but that may not be the speaker's intent. And I told her that, you know, the way I sound is different than the way my voice comes out to other people. And it's because of all this, and I'm still very, very interested. And, you know, um, she really wasn't familiar at all with the condition. Mm -hmm. And she apologized later for being rude. But I had to tell her, you know, this is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. You know, the more honest we can get in a conversation about this kind of stuff, the better it is. And the the more honest we can get early on in something like this, the better it is too. Uh-huh. Because I don't want it to be like, you know, you learn these things about me later on and then it's like, okay, well, this threw me for a loop and we've talked or known each other for how long of a time? So I just basically, you know, I just told her I have Asperger's syndrome and, you know, that that made things easier and we've been still talking on the phone ever since. So, you know, that that's, I think that that's kind of important. Yes, yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, anyways, um, it was great having you on. Thank you. Thank you I felt me. like this is kind of a therapy session for myself too. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was fantastic having you on and uh, yes. fantastic answers to questions. Thank you. you know, perhaps someone can like listen to this and, and feel like, you know, they're, they, that they can see things that, that they feel like you may answer or they're, they're like, oh, so who's this person? I really want to speak to her because I feel like this person can answer so many questions that I never even thought about. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that this could be a very important information source for others. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this uh, podcast episode, this very special episode. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jen. We appreciate it so much. Okay, thank you. Have a great night, guys. You too. You too. As always, it is time to go over Today in the World of Autism. Starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Shinnok, and his fantastic research-oriented stories. All right, let's get to it. I feel like that delivery of the Today in the World of Autism intro was particularly inspiring. So Thank you so much. I try to be, uh, what was his name? Uh, James Earl Jones. Yeah, I try to be James Earl Jones whenever I do that. <laughs> this is cnn so yeah something like that maybe merrick can play in the next star wars movie star wars 23 i find your lack of faith is disturbing (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> Getting a little more serious here. So <laughs> um, I wanted to first bring up a recently published article in the highly respected journal called JAMA Pediatrics. And this article explored the relationship between TV viewing, time at age one, and the likelihood for an autism diagnosis at age three. It is well understood at this point that autism development is strongly influenced by genetics with heritability estimates spanning anywhere from 40 to 80%. However, investigating the role of contributing environmental factors in utero and also in early childhood is an important research endeavor. The research team involved with this study screened roughly 100,000 pregnant women from a large Japanese cohort between 2011 and 2014, and they found that 84,030 mother-child pairs qualified for the data analysis. In this cohort, 0.4% of the children, which comprised of 76% males, received a diagnosis of autism at age three. Notably, there was a significant and positive association between increased screen time, again, at age one, and likelihood of diagnosis at age three. And this was only true for males when the data was partitioned between males and females. This finding was despite there being no significant difference in screen time between males and females. From their analysis, the researchers were able to conclude that watching two or more hours of TV per day was sort of the cutoff, the fine line, um, that was related to in, an increased risk for males. It's important to note, to note that this study relied on parental reports, which are often biased, and also did not control for other factors like parenting quality and time spent interacting with parents in comparison to time spent watching television. Still, it's notable that the American Academy of Pediatrics recently warned against any screen time before 18 months of age, unless the child is engaged in video chatting with a parent that is out of town. Those are the words of the American Academy of Pediatrics. So an interesting look at just one of a myriad of environmental factors that could explain some of the environmental variation in autism cases. Merrick, what opinions do you have on this report? Um, yeah, I'll start there. Well, um, so I guess this is another thing you can blame on television. You know, you think about it. Oh, well, you, you watch too much TV, okay? <laughs> you're a parent you're just sitting your kid in front of the tv set as a as a babysitter you it's an it's another way to blame tv for everything i just love how at the end it says unless the child is video chatting a parent so if you're <laughs> a parent who uh actually you know wants to discourage the aap um, all you have to do to want to break the rules, all you have to do is while you're video chatting with your kid, you just show uh, a few clips of SpongeBob SquarePants, and you know that that's all that's contraband now. 
that that would be contraband in terms of uh going against the grain but um no it's uh it's very very interesting um I don't remember how much television I saw when I was uh, really, really, really little. Um, I probably saw a lot. Um, my, uh, I, I, I hate it to sounds like I'm, I'm unveiling some kind of family secret, but my mother was basically brought up on television. There were like three or four TVs in the house she grew up with. And she absolutely loves uh, television. So um, I, I, I really do imagine that I got a lot of TV viewing time during those years. Um, I, I think what, what is especially interesting is the fact that, you know, many, many individuals with ASD are very strong visual learners, you know, and many of them really love uh, movies and TV shows, cartoons, you know, things with uh, a lot of visuality. So, you know, does that, does all that TV viewing correlate to a greater emphasis on visual learning and a visual interest versus non-visual learning and non-visual interest? What I also find interesting is that um, it goes after television. It doesn't go after, you know, video games. It doesn't go after movies. It doesn't go after anything else. It goes after television. Question is, is it yeah. because television is such a constant, instantaneous thing? that, you know, you watch a movie, you have to concentrate for two hours or so while watching a movie. And then once it's off, it's off. Or, you know, video games, while they can be like 40 or 50 hours, you know, once that's done, it's done. But TV is never off. You know, you think about it. Um, whatever show you watch, whatever channel you watch, you know, it's, it's not after a certain amount of time anymore that, that the channel is going to go to sleep and that's it. A, ch a channel will have programming for like 24 hours a day. And your mind is going to be exposed to so much stimuli and, and so much uh, going on, you know. Um, does that also have a correlation with so much sensory processing disorders and things to do with stimuli, things to do with, you know, um, how, how people uh, are in regards to, you know, loud noises and crowds and the like, does that have to do with after effects of having that much time spent watching television? I, I do find it interesting, though, that uh, that one can say, I guess, that, you know, it, well, it also is interesting because autism, as understood today, is relatively new, relatively recent. So and and people talk about, you know, the greater prevalence of autism now than before. But I, I, do, I do have to think to myself, you know, is, 
are we supposed to then uh, call for a nationwide ban or, or you know, basically going after um, um, those uh, channel bosses, you know, um, NBC, CBS, whatever it is, and basically say, oh, well, after two hours, you, you have to turn this uh, channel off or you have to, you know, put some restrictions on it so that they may not cause autism or they may not cause an increased incidence of autism. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that this is very, very interesting information and I can understand the causation um, and perhaps the correlation, but it's not like I'm going to tell someone, you know, um, if, if the child is a certain age that they should stop watching television because they may develop a incidence rate of having autism. And if, if a parent ends up slipping some Looney Tunes or some, you know, or some, uh, how can I say it? Some Dexter's Laboratory um, during a video chat. I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, take any offense at that. I, I think that it can be an interesting result, but it also kind of begs a question, though, as to the individuals who are not getting that incidence rate or the individuals who are not getting the diagnosis because of the effects of this, why is it that they're not getting the diagnosis and why is it that other people are? I, I don't yeah. think it's really, I think that if you study the data enough, you will find the reasons for why some ha are getting it and why some aren't. And I don't think it's a gamble. It's not like, oh, you'll have this 40% chance of, no, I, I think that it's, I, I also question, you know, what are they watching during that time? Are they just watching news programs? Are they watching cartoons? Are they watching... Um, it, it's like anything yeah. else. You can take something like this and look at it at face value. And once you start analyzing it and maybe taking it a little bit apart, it's, it's a question of, of why, first of all, why is it television? Why is it not any other form of media? Why is it just television? And secondly, why is it that not everyone gets this? And all these other questions or all these other uh, points that I've made uh, about this. But yeah. I, I will say, though, to you, uh, as my comment to you is that that this is one of the most fascinating uh, stories you've shared um, for this whole segment, because this isn't just something that is, you know, niche as much as it is something that could be published anywhere. You could have Newsweek do an article that says this. You could have the yeah. New York Times, you could have the New York Post, you could have any uh, publication publish something about this. And it's like, 
how will this affect public policy and how will this affect, you know, the way we look at things, the way we look at television. So, so I think that this is a very important article, but I do believe um, that, that it's, uh, that it's interesting to dissect it for conclusions that are a little bit beyond what the article is already saying to us. Yeah, that's really well put. Um, a lot to un unpack there. But first of all, I want to make the point that um, one of the reasons that I really wanted to cover this article is because just like you were saying at the end there, it's received a lot of attention in the media. It's being, you know, headlined all over Twitter and from, um, you know, CNN, Fox News, New York Times, they, they've all, you know, they're covering the results of this study. And I wanna quickly make a point that there were, although these findings are informative and interesting, there's a lot of flaws to this study from a research standpoint. There's, um, you know, the issue of correlation versus causation. You know, is it, a, is it a matter that these children are um, simply being exposed to more television or is there something about them that's uh, more drawn to watching TV, um, something genetically? And then is that contributing to parents letting them watch more television? Um, it was all self-report based. And we know that parents, their reports of the amount of time children watch television can be flawed um, and inaccurate. But taking some of those methodological issues aside, you know, it was a very large sample. And so the findings, they're informative. And I want to quickly say that there's also a lot of literature on watching, you know, excessive amounts of TV in early childhood and the development of ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so I do think, you know, couple the findings of this article with the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And this is, this, this should come as a pretty good warning sign to, to parents just that, you know, watching TV, although it's not ca uh, causing these conditions, you know, it could, it could have some negative aspects of brain, uh, negative as uh, effects on brain functionality. And then last point uh, is that television in this study, I did look at this and it was defined as any viewable media um, you know, whether it was some kind of TV program or it was a movie, uh, nothing related to video games because these kids were, you know, they only looked at, at this in one-year-olds. So it was purely just viewable media. Well, also uh, another thing that should be pointed out, of course, is that, you know, TV is extremely popular. It, it always has been. Any form of viewable media is extremely popular. So is it something like uh, 
It reminds me of those people who would say, you know, violence in video games causes violence in real life. And right. when they stick to it, you know, the most popular selling video games are, you know, games like Call of Duty, but they say billion, but they sell billions and billions of copies. And, you know, that, that basically has a much, much larger share of people. And that could mean, you know, a few of the people who play the game may end up being very violent or very aggressive or whatever. But does that mean that the video game causes the violence? You know, where, where, it's, where it's sort of like, does a larger share, if you, uh, a lot of people drink milk, okay? Um, if someone has like a, goes on a violent rampage because they drink milk, is it because of the larger share of capital that gets uh, absorbed or the larger share of, you know, sales of the product that may go to people with, you know, irrational behaviors? Or is it that the product itself causes the irrational behaviors? And right. I think that that is also something to maybe take into account for because, you know, you can have a TV anywhere. You uh, Nowadays, I would have to say probably due to COVID-19 a little bit, um, I haven't read any studies on this, but it wouldn't surprise me that over the last like two or three years, um, television and any form of home viewable media may have exploded a little bit more than in the past, you know, because people can watch any movie, people can watch any television show, people can watch anything now than they have ever done in the past. So I think that that's also something to think about. Yeah. But, but it's not saying, though, that, you know, everything in the study doesn't have a point to it it's just you know is it about the larger share of things or is it about the product itself and i think that that's something to think about yeah it's still very informative but i always take some issue with the correlational nature of these studies and we often use the example of you know, there's, there's an extremely high correlation between ice cream sales and murders recorded. And, you know, what is the, what do these two things have in common? Well, you know, obviously you can't say that ice cream causes people to behave violently, but simply, you know, they're both occurring more during summertime. Um, so just another example of how correlation research can be a little bit flawed. Yeah, if I if I had a kid, basically, I I would what I would try to do is I would try to, you know, diversify the kid's knowledge of media. And I would basically, um, but you know, it's it's just very, very difficult. You know, at the age of one, what, what are you expected to really do? Are you expected to, you know, I, I guess I could give the kid a book, you know, give the book. And then once the kid's finished with that book, get another book, maybe watch like 30 minutes of a program or something. But 
you know, when, when I, I think that when you're a parent and your kid is that young, it's, it's a question as to, you know, what, what can you, what can you give the kid as, as that, uh, you know, that that's kind of a curious nature, but, but what can you give the kid? I guess I'd also give the kid, maybe I give the kid, like, I'll have the kid listen to, uh, some, uh, children's songs, you know, mm-hmm. but that's, that's, uh, it's, you're going at the very, very, at the heart, one of the harder things probably to do as a parent is, is to find out how, what your kid can like at such a young, young age when, you know, they're not really expected to like anything. They're, they're in their extremely early developmental years. So, so maybe, you know, a block or two, but, uh, yeah, well, we I'm, can probably go after this article all day and all night because of yeah. how interesting it is. But but I'll allow you to uh, go on to your second story. Yeah, I'll, I'll just one last point is that when it comes to the four autism podcasts, the demographic that we have the most popularity in is actually the one to two year old demographic. So uh <laughs> <laughs> I think listening listening to our podcast is a good alternative. Like you know, Jen Smith talked about belly laughs, and that was a real belly laugh there. It wasn't fake. <laughs> That's what we want. Yeah. All righty. So moving on here. Um, second topic is on the role of the amygdala when it comes to autism. And so first of all, the amygdala, it's a a really important part of the brain. It's shaped like a small almond and it plays an essential role in processing emotions. And also it's involved in learned fears throughout our lives. It's been previously implicated in both anxiety and autism, interestingly enough. And it probably comes as no surprise, but anxiety is common with autism with some estimates, um, estimates from the Mind Institute researchers who um, did this study that I'll be talking about. They found that the rate of anxiety is 69% in autistic children and 8% in non-autistic children. So a very steep contrast there. And in this study, the research team, they used MRI to scan the brains of 71 autistic and 55 non-autistic individuals between the ages of two and 12. And over this time frame, they were scanned up to four times. Between ages nine and 12, clinical psychologists interviewed parents of the children, and they also delivered the anxiety disorders interview schedule and the autism spectrum of addendum to tease out uh, the presence of autism specific anxieties. So nearly half of the autistic children had traditional anxiety. They qualified for that uh, diagnosis or autism distinct anxiety or both. So that was 50% roughly of the sample. Autistic children with traditional anxiety. So here's where the, the neuroscience came in. Autistic children with traditional anxiety had significantly larger amygdala volumes 
compared to the non-autistic children. For those children with autism distinct anxieties, but not traditional forms of anxiety, the opposite was true. They had significant, significantly smaller amygdala volumes. And so this study, I would say, is a prime example of how different autistic subgroups may have different underlying brain changes or biomarkers. And quickly, I'll say that traditional anxiety, we could characterize this as fearful avoidance to context experienced by non-autistic people. So traditionally, anxiety-provoking situations, maybe it's uh, work-related, maybe it's public speaking, maybe it's spiders, roller coasters, um, and autism-specific anxieties occur in different contexts, um, such as uncommon phobias, like anxiety related to things like facial hair or toilet seats, so non-traditional uh, contexts. And additionally, excessive worries may relate to losing access to materials that the autistic individual is very interested in. Um, Merrick, how does, um, what do you think of this study, first of all, and how does it relate to you? So as uh, anyone who knows me knows, um, I feel like I have generalized anxiety disorder. Um, there have been moments in the past where I just wouldn't either leave my apartment or I would very rarely leave the building that I'm in. You know, it's almost agoraphobic in some respects. Um, and I think that when you look around, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter where on the spectrum they lie, from the profoundly affected to the lightly affected, you'll probably find some form of anxiety there um, especially if you go further on to the profoundly affected because they, they really want to get things out. They really want to say things. They really want to, you know, follow the patterns of speech and communication that everyone else does, but they have just so much anxiety about finding a way to communicate about trying to work within their own neurology that it, that it can be very, very nerve-wracking. I think that that is why whenever you may hear about someone profoundly affected and they uh, run around a lot or they have a lot of motion or they stim a lot or whatever it is, it's probably due to a lot of anxiety about how to interface in the world that they live in with such a different neurology than many of the people, than most of the people who they interact with. Um, and I also think that it has to do with autism specific anxieties, which sounds a little bit like, um, and I'm not a expert, okay, but it sounds a little bit like OCD, you know, we have um, maybe what is considered an uncommon phobia something that may be more specific to you, but it, it, it does exist and it does occur. Um, I found the last sentence about excessive worries to be extremely relevant to me. 
Um, I have uh, like a really large collection of video games that I've stored over the years. Um, many of them um, are through uh, certain systems and the like that I've been able to keep digital sets of uh, games. And I do fear about losing them uh, sometimes. And I have feared about it more in the past. I even have a really weird fear because part of it is that I am so absent-minded. And sometimes I, I, I feel I like to characterize my neurology in my brain like a, an event of juggling, you know? And I'm not saying about juggling tasks or juggling duties or the like where, you know, maybe you lose a few things, but eventually you may be able to pick them back up. I'm talking about juggling over a black hole. Um, you're suspended by some form of physicality, but you're juggling all your thoughts and all your ideas and everything over a black hole. And so I, I, in the past, I've usually tried to stay away from distractions. I've tried to stay away from significant transitions. I've tried to stay away from confrontations. Anything that could cause me to lose some very precious thoughts and ideas into the black hole or into the abyss, I would get very, very fearful of, and I would get very phobic about. And I would be, I would be very, very protective because I would feel like if I lose this, it's gone forever. And I won't be able to get it back. I won't be able to you know, create something as good as what was once in my mind. And it can be as trivial as, so on the work laptop at work, um, at one point, the memory used by my Word documents is also why I have an excessive number of tabs open on any internet browser is because I am just so fearful that if I lose a tab or I lose a bunch of them, things will not be the same or I'll forget what the tabs were or I'll forget what the content was. And that would lead me in a, in a kind of a disturbed state of irrationality and dysfunctionality. Um, so basically what, what, um, what happened was is that I lost um, a few uh, Word documents um, and I recovered most of it, but there was like, it was just a bunch of things that I had in my mind to play for one of the social group games. And it was a lot of, it was basically a lot of words that were suggestions to myself for what I will do that day when I play the social group game. And when I lost that, I was like, how can I even recover that when what I had before was so good? It, it, it's, it's such... I want to call it sick, but it is such a painful, self-destructive uh, mode to be in. But the problem is, is that it's so informed. This is not something that, you know, you look at and you go, oh, my gosh, this is just irrational and there's no real basis for it. But there is. And it feels like there is such a rational basis for it in such an irrational mindset.
It is unbelievable. And I don't, I, I, I've tried to be more tolerant of it over the years. Part of it is due to the fact that since I have a lot of this occur on the computer, the ability to cloud save, the ability to recover things easily, the ability to have all, all these safeguards and safety nets for information and data makes things a lot easier for me. But I, I would just have like kind of a nervous breakdown when I'm on an older computer and I would have to lose files or I would have to lose or, or my AOL or whatever would completely shut down and I would lose all the windows. I would lose everything that I had and I would go into a panic mode because I really seriously couldn't remember half of the things I had on there and it would just drive me nuts. It would drive me absolutely nuts. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, is you said that it's a, the smaller amygdala, um, you know, so how do you even fix that? How do you even take that and go, you know, you, you'll remember a lot more things you'll, or, or maybe whatever you don't remember, it doesn't really mean anything. How do you even fix something like that? Because it's not the, amygdala's fault as much as it is some weird irrationality based on a rational basis what do you even do i think the advantage of a study like this that tries to tease apart these different components of anxiety and link them to brain structures or brain atypicalities is it helps First of all, it helps us to understand better that these are distinct um, distinct symptoms that people are experiencing, right? There, you know, autism-specific anxiety is different from typical a typical form of anxiety. And we have kind of the mechanistic proof with a study like this. And ultimately one of the major goals of neuroscience is if you, you look at medication treatments or some of the other brain-based therapies that are out there, um, you know, you could customize them a little better having this type of knowledge in mind. But yeah, you know, you, you made a lot of good points about um, the behavioral aspects of these these conditions and how, how difficult they are to, to treat. And, um, but, but there are, there's a lot of good strategies out there. And, um, I like these neuroscience type findings, uh, because again, they can help with the diagnosis process. They can also help to objectively track treatment related progress. You know, I think they're, they're very helpful. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think that part of it is that maybe someone would say that that's uh, part of my uh, OCD diagnosis or whatever, but, you know, it's, it's definitely there and, it, and it's there for a reason, at least in my case. So, yeah. you know, this, this isn't something that it, it's the way the brain works. And I think I mentioned this before is uh, just so interesting 
because it's not always point A to point B. It's just you have so many different varieties of things that can happen in a person's mind and that you may never, ever get. You may never understand or you may never even, you know, see it, but it happens. And it's, it's like these conversations I would have with other people. And I think that what I think is so simple and it's such a simple interpretation but it turns out to be so different. And for the other people, it's either they try to interpret it through their mindset, which makes things simple for them, or they don't even understand it. And it, it's just, it's what, whatever you think of the mind as being simple, it, it, it certainly really isn't. Um, you you can say that almost objectively. It certainly, it certainly isn't. No. So, Far from it. Yeah. All right. Your turn. <laughs> hey, yeah. All right. So uh, the first story I want to do is about Ar Armani Williams. Um, this is about an individual who um, in the interview I had, we had with uh, Ron Sanderson, um, I brought him up and uh, this is a story that I'm going to do about him because I think that he is a very important person. And I think that he is one of many role models that we have in the autism community for those who are looking for them. So uh, February is the month of Black History Month, celebrating the accomplishments and achievements of African-Americans in the history of the United States. Started in the 1920s as a history week by activist and historian Carter G. Woodson, to combat what was seen as the humanizing portrayals of African-Americans in educational materials at the time, the History Week became a history month and has been something that has been celebrated for every February as long as I can remember. For this month, I would like to celebrate the accomplishments of Armani Williams, an African-American NASCAR driver with autism. Originally nonverbal at the age of two, when he received his ASD diagnosis, he first became interested in racing at the age of eight when he started playing with his Hot Wheels cars. Generally, people with autism may have difficulties riding bikes and driving cars, but Mr. Williams was able to master them both very easily. For example, he took a two-week training course on riding a bike as a kid and mastered it in a day. Then at around the age of 16, when teenagers are starting to learn to drive, Armani was invited to a NASCAR driver's diversity program where he took part in his first race at 17 years of age in the Canadian Tires, now called the Pinty Series. What helps him, he says, is that autism has given him his focus and his concentration, so what could be seen as a deficit actually gives him an advantage and an edge over the competition. Currently, Mr. Williams is not only one of three African-American drivers in NASCAR, but the first driver in general who openly has autism. Because of this, he has seen how his example has made a tremendous impact on others. Parents with children with autism have seen him as a role model, and he has Centria Autism of Farmington Hills, a leading provider in applied behavioral analysis, ABA therapy on his car as a primary sponsor. Out of generally 43 racers, Armani has on average placed at number 10 as a racer. So he's not just a proponent of autism awareness, but also of how someone with autism can succeed. 
When not racing in NASCAR, he is at Oakland University studying mechanical engineering. He feels like mechanical engineering is the closest field of study to college to what he loves doing with NASCAR. He is only 21 years of age today, so his career has just gotten started. For the show notes, I will also like to link to an article, which I had mentioned uh, previously, written by our board member guest, Ron Sanderson, about Armani Williams. I think that it is a very insightful interview with a man who has the whole world in his hands. Nate, this is kind of a different thing uh, to ask you, but I feel like it would be interesting to ask you anyways. If you had to ask Armani Williams three questions, what would they be and why? Yeah, I like this exercise. And hey, hopefully I'll be able to ask him these questions one day. Who knows? So first of all, I'd, I'd like to just ask him how, um, I guess, how he's been received from other people in the, the NASCAR world, um, his, his colleagues, not only because, you know, he's, he's very young, so he, he has that um, going for him, but also um, with the autism diagnosis you know I'm just kind of curious to hear um, how the other racers have been interacting with him if they've been encouraging um, and very supportive um, or just you know how they've welcomed him into the sport my second question would be a little bit more uh, about the experience of being a NASCAR driver and I would ask him First of all, um, you know, driving 150 miles per hour on tight turns around the track, is that uh, something that's always exhilarating? Is it something that um, gets him locked in to this incredible tunnel vision-like focus? Um, I know he mentioned that he credits some aspects of his autism as something that does give him laser sharp focus. So um, a little bit more curious about the sensory experience of being a NASCAR driver. And then number three would be just, I'd probably ask him to give some advice to our young listeners on, um, on uh, being pioneers and whatever it is that they're trying to do. You know, he is the, the only NASCAR driver, he's only one of three African-American drivers in NASCAR, which is means he's an anomaly um, already. And then to also have the autism diagnosis, um, just incredibly innovative. So yeah, just some advice on being a pioneer and, and how you can use your differences to be, uh, to excel. While I'm not Armani, I can definitely say that to your second question that you would ask him, um, he would say that the 170 to 180 miles per hour or whatever it is, the, the kinds of uh, vehicles he would drive, uh, that, that the sensory experience from going that fast uh, was a strong motivation for him to get involved in that sport. He was, uh, to him, it was taking those Hot Wheels cars 
and adding such a dynamic element that it fascinated him. And whenever he would be with his family and they would be watching television or watching something, he would always want them to tune into motor car or, or uh, you know, racing or motoring or anything like that, because he was so fascinated that people in these vehicles can drive so fast. So he definitely does have a need for speed, as they say. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. No, that makes sense. I could see that being therapeutic in some ways, too. Yeah, it was uh, it's definitely uh, good to pursue, you know, something that feels if it if it's a job you like, if it's a job you love and it's also therapeutic, you know, it's a great deal. Yes, indeed. So um, my next story is an interesting one. It's provocative. And uh, on the For Autism podcast, we don't really shy away from provocative stories sometimes. And I think that this one is very interesting. Um, I have it titled as Thomas Jefferson Asperger's Syndrome. So um, the history of autism is known for its retrospective diagnosis, especially because it is so new. Many individuals of eccentricities and idiosyncrasies that all seem to fit known symptoms of those with autism or Asperger's syndrome have been mentioned as famous people. Uh, celebrities are heroes. You may have heard about Mozart, Albert Einstein, other people who passed before the diagnosis was known. And while I, as a representative of the community, personally feel like these retro diagnoses uh, can be a little bit dangerous, maybe can also be a little bit overkill. Um, and overstating things, um, especially if you're just going by like a few like quirks of someone's character, it may not be, uh, you know, enough to place a diagnosis. But it is still worth a discussion today because it's, um, it's very, very, very popular. You, if you ever see like a list of here are these people with autism, you'll usually have someone with a retro diagnosis uh, on there. Um, and I feel like uh, because February is also the month for President's Day, and while I remember being told by a tutor of mine about how Richard Nixon may have had Asperger's syndrome, although he passed on the same year as the diagnosis became popularized, though, 1994, there are plenty of articles out there about how one of our founding fathers author of the Declaration of Independence and third U.S. President Thomas Jefferson may be a candidate to retrodiagnose with Asperger's syndrome. Routine-oriented, suffering from speech disabilities, sensory processing disorders, and had difficulties with relationships and eye contact, these claims all would suppose to fit in with the criteria of what used to be called in the clinical sense Asperger's syndrome as now just another branch of autism. At the time, of course, his traits were misunderstood as either being shifty or cold by his rivals. Would I consider Thomas Jefferson autistic? According to the examples given, probably. None of our presidents has ever had the diagnosis, though there are theories here and there if any of them had or hadn't. Perhaps with today's understandings and foundations, it wouldn't surprise me 
if his life would have turned out very similar as it was back then, but perhaps with a greater sense of understanding and compassion for the traits he imbued in his character. He made it as the third president, and looking at all the accomplishments he did, uh, you know, that definitely isn't something to really sniff at. It, it wasn't like, even if he may have been seen as kind of a oddball or something, he still was given a lot of, uh, of definite, uh, you know, power and energy. And he definitely made his mark on the world, no matter what he had. Um, he also may not have died in debt either, but there have been many famous people who passed that way too. Um, for example, Orson Welles, who directed Citizen Kane, I believe he kind of uh, passed away as a pauper. And there's no analysis or whatever that he ever, that Orson Welles himself, although actually when thinking about it, there may have been a few articles written but I don't believe that in pop culture, he would have been considered as someone with autism or Asperger's. Um, so that's one person who I think uh, died in a very similar way. I would like to showcase after this broadcast some articles to serve as food for thought for that question. It is certainly more well-researched than someone of fame being socially awkward as a draw to retrodiagnosis. I do guess if in a different key, the story of autism, which is a great book can theorize about the retro diagnosis of people from long ago, although they talk about people who are a lot less well-known than Jefferson or Albert Einstein, uh, possibly having it, I can theorize too. Dr. Chinock, in your research, could you retro diagnose someone with autism? Um, and also what are your thoughts on this story? Yeah, first of all, great story. I think we really, between these four, I think we're, we're really uh, at the top of our game, if I say so myself. Um, this story is a little controversial. It's definitely thought-provoking, but I think that's, those are the topics we should be talking about. Um, to address the first question, which is, from a research standpoint, could you retro-diagnose someone with autism? I would say the best you could do from a research standpoint is look at some of the historical accounts of Jefferson's personality, his interactions with other people, you know, maybe journals of those who are close to him. And there is a book out there, actually called Diagnosing Jefferson. And it's by Norm Legend, who uh, that's L-E-D-G-I-N. And it does kind of compile some of this, this evidence into a convincing argument that uh, Thomas Jefferson would in fact qualify for a diagnosis of, um, of being on the spectrum. So, you know, from a strict really, uh, quality research standpoint, the answer would be no, but, you know, looking at some of these historical accounts, you could sort of um, have a reliable method for a retro diagnosis. 
But aside from that, you know, from the, the traits that you've presented, I'm, I'm not as well versed um, with these historical accounts, but from the traits you presented, it does sound like a possibility. And I wanna just comment on the retro diagnoses in general. I think that they can be useful. Um, I think that they can give society a greater awareness on autism, a greater understanding for it. And also at the individual level, when you talk about people who had these tremendous accomplishments like Thomas Jefferson, that could be inspiration for you know, a child today or an adult who's just found out about a diagnosis and it can help normalize it a little bit. But that, keeping that in mind, we should be careful to accept these stories as not 100% reliable. They're, you know, they're estimates, they're theories, but, um, you know, in the case of some celebrities today, Jerry Seinfeld, Dan Aykroyd, you know, these are people who have, have uh, mentioned that they could be autistic. I just think it's important to recognize the difference between, you know, a theory about someone having autism versus the validity of an actual diagnosis. Yeah, I, I really do agree with you on that. Um, I, I think I recall Jerry Seinfeld talking about it and then either walking it back or something else happened. But um, there is no doubt in my mind that uh, Dan Aykroyd either has a mild form or has some form of Asperger's or something like that. Um, but, but yeah, um, when, when you go through this whole thing, you've really got to, you know, make sure that you don't automatically say, oh, the world's greatest genius. Well, the world's greatest genius had this or had that. And uh, it, it, it may end up uh, for someone who, it's like Rain Man, for someone who basically lives an average life or something like that. And then they hear about how, oh, the world's greatest genius has autism. And they're like, yeah, I have it too, but I'm not the world's greatest genius. Um, I, I'm, I'm not becoming president of the United States. I didn't, I, I didn't uh, invent something or I didn't come up with something like the theory of relativity. I just, I, I'm just basically working a job at McDonald's. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of that thing where, you know, we don't know. And it's a question as to how useful is it? Is it useful or could it also be kind of damaging too? Because, you know, it, it almost seems like sometimes the world's most misunderstood, like scientific geniuses who are maybe odd or eccentric or idiosyncratic. Oh, well, you know, they, they must have autism or they probably have it. Um, you know, and, and it's not saying, though, that we haven't had, you know, great minds and people with uh, a genius level, you know, whatever's um, that they that they that not nobody has had autism. Um, but it's just 
it's like when people talk about Bill Gates. Um, and I don't know if anyone has ever actually clinically diagnosed him. I don't even know if, if he has ever come and said to someone or, or said publicly that, you know, he has Asperger's or he has autism, but it, it plays into a way in which it becomes such a commonly thought of thing about him that it almost becomes a fact, even if you have no real evidence that he has ever been you know, diagnosed with it or, or that someone has ever, or that he has ever come out and said point blank that, that this is what he has. Um, yeah. And I think that that can also go for some of the other people we may talk about, you know, but there are other people who will say it's uh, the big reveal of Elon Musk or uh, Gary Newman who did uh, Cars um, which helped pioneer electronic music in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, there are people out there like that, but um, you just got to be, uh, if, if someone says openly that they have it and they don't backtrack or they don't take it back, I, I would believe them. But if it's like some popular theory, then that's not something that I would just use lightly. Um, I remember one of the first things that I was told to do uh, for the foundation is to compose a bunch of tweets or like of these famous individuals with autism or whatever, or these great individuals with autism. And the problem was, was that I found people who did have it, who are great people or were extremely talented but then there was a lot of pushback against certain other people. And it was like, well, and, and I also fell into the whole uh, retrodiagnosis wormhole too. So I don't really, I, I think we either said, you know, let's uh, delay it, or I will just use a few definite examples. But what I didn't know at the time was just how you know, how just, I, I guess how, in a, in a weird way, how controversial all of this really was. Because, you know, you're basically saying, well, these are the real brainiacs. These are the most talented people of their generations. And they all happen to have the same common trait of possibly having autism right now. And I think that that was when I started thinking to myself, maybe this is not exactly the best thing to, uh, maybe this is not as definite or as, you know, or, or something that I should be light about because this can be uh, very shaky sometimes and you don't want an earthquake. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, on both aspects, I agree with you on all aspects that it would be great, um, you know, if someone has like all these traits and categories, probably could use it to prove a theory or to prove a thought. But you've also got to be very careful that you don't end up doing something, you know, that 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 really doesn't make uh, 
any sense in the end. And I don't even know if any interviewer has ever asked Bill Gates if he has had the condition. And he isn't the only one, by the way, in modern times that that people may have uh, had theories about. Um, but, but he is probably one of the most um, well-known. And I just don't remember um, really when, when I was hearing about it, I don't remember seeing an article or seeing anything at all that was definite proof that this is what he has other than, you know, here's this uh, very, very wealthy individual who is, you know, a, a tech guy, probably a tech genius. And, you know, that, that's, that's what he's all about. So, yeah. Yeah. That's well said. I mean, maybe I'll go back and may, maybe I'll go online and I'll find like some definite proof articles. I could have sworn that I found something that was a little bit more definite in one way or another. But, you know, as far as my memory is concerned, it's, it's more up in the air than I would say that I feel like I can have a definite feeling about what neurology bill gates has yeah so. all right good stuff yeah so um quite a quite uh yeah like you said uh quite a batch of four stories you know and i think that they are all uh, anyone who listens will probably come out of it feeling like wow um, you know, this is a, this is the real gamut. So, um, anyways, uh, not to take up too much of our listeners time, uh, forward hence, uh, before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in March with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. And how do we close our uh, our podcast episodes? Ready? Ready? One, two, three, four. I wish that I could fly. So high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air. So high, oh, like a butterfly. A moth is a butterfly without any colors, but what's beautiful is what's inside. Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide. Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around. Knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air So high Oh, like a butterfly Like a bird I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight And even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind 
will light up To think that I was once a poor cat and pup Will grow up and take to the sky Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air so high I'm a butterfly